0: This is Africa Digest.
1: 1700 hours Central African time. It's a beautiful day in Johannesburg, Wednesday, the 18th of September. Good evening. Or should we say good afternoon, Ijwalani, because of the fact that now we're going into spring, it's still light out. Let's take advantage, let's say good
2: afternoon. Yes,
1: I agree with that. Welcome to Africa Digest, you're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Ijwalani Tulo, Nosishya Zuma, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. South Africa gets ready to assume the rotating chairmanship of the African Union in 2020. Save the children, South Africa welcomes today's constitutional court ruling outlawing corporate punishment in homes. In economics, the recent lending rates and housing deposits cut by the Bank of Namibia will not be sufficient to move the property market out of the ditch. And in sport, a clean sheet for South African Premiership side by Melody Sundowns tonight will be enough to take them to their first MTN8 final in three seasons. So uh, as part of the top stories, we're seeing that uh, Save the Children South Africa welcomes today's Constitutional Court ruling outlawing corporate punishment in homes. JT... What do you think of this? Um, uh, did you grow up with uh, a young spank?
2: No, I didn't actually. Really, uh, my upbringing was actually quite different. My parents did not. My father, in specific, did not believe in spanking, so I was not spanked at all. At all.
1: All right. So our our technical producer, Catherine Malika, has children of her own. Catherine, I want to find out from you: How do you bring up your kids?
2: I don't spank my kids at <laughs> all. <laughs> So it's clearly in this studio, non-spanking seems to work.
1: Seemingly in this studio, people agree with Save the Children, South Africa. But right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. It's 1702. Here is Rala Tula with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an
3: African perspective.
2: Well, thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. At least 27 children have died in a fire at a boarding school in a suburb near the Liberian capital, Monrovia. The fire is believed to have broken out when school students were sleeping in a building attached to a mosque. The BBC's Will Ross has the details.
4: The Liberian police have told the BBC they're still searching for more bodies. The blaze broke out during the night at a boarding house attached to a mosque in Painesville, a suburb east of the capital, Monrovia. Officials say the students at the Quranic school are between 10 and 20 years old. The Liberian president, George Weir, has visited the scene and said he was praying for the families of the children who had died. He described it as a tough time for those relatives and all of
5: Liberia.
2: The Democratic Republic of Congo's army says it has killed the commander of a Rwandan Houthi militia, Sylvestra Muka Kumura, who is wanted by the International Criminal Court. Muda Kumura had been a leader of the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, FDLR, since its founding in the year 2000 by Houthi officials who fled Rwanda at the end of the 1994 genocide. The FDLR was waged periodic war with the the Congolese government has waged, rather, a periodic war with the Congolese government and rival militias, and Rwanda's government has cited its presence on Congolese soil to justify repeated interventions across the border. Muda Kumura's death is the latest blow to the FDLR, which has been weakened in recent years by arrests of several of its leaders and military pressure from Congo's army and other militias. The International Court issued an arrest warrant for Makudura in 2012 for alleged attacks against civilians' murder rape and torture in eastern congo where militia members have operated since the 1994 genocide in rwanda On to the next story, according to a study by Doctors Without Borders, MSF, 95% of women who reported being raped said they had never told any medical practitioner. The medical aid agency revealed shocking statistics on rape cases in Rustenburg, in the heart of South Africa's platinum mining belt, where an estimated 11,000 women are raped a year. Following the 2015 survey, MSF has been providing high quality and confidential care for rape survivors in Rustensburg's Bujana district through four dedicated clinics known as or case centres. MSF forensic nurse Cecilia Lamola Larofi.
6: 95% you can already see it's a very large percentage of people that are not you know health seeking in a way and um, we took it also from the perspective that sexual violence it's got consequences that other people they are not even aware of that if you have been a victim of sexual violence you can also get an HIV prophylaxis that can prevent you from transmission of HIV from the incidence. If then people are not aware then it becomes really concerns to us to say how then will people then get the prophylaxis that we are talking about.
2: The U.S. government will be contributing over $740 million to fight the HIV-AIDS pandemic in South Africa in the next year. Acting American Ambassador David Young says the money will be used in different HIV-AIDS programs. Young, who will be based in the country for three years, has visited a number of clinics in the Durban metro. Young says just because more people now have access to ARVs, it does not mean the pandemic is over.
7: Uh, For the uh, United States government, this year we're putting uh, over 750 million U.S. dollars, which is over 11 billion rand, uh, to the efforts uh, in the fight against HIV and AIDS. Well, it's important to emphasize that our efforts uh, in combating HIV and AIDS are done with uh, the government uh, and partners here in South Africa. So both from the, the federal, the uh, provincial, the uh, district level, it's important that we work all together. And the contribution that we put in is, is only a fraction of what the South African government uh, puts in.
2: And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump says he's ordered Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen to substantially increase sanctions on Iran amid escalating tensions between Washington and Tehran. He did not give additional details on the move, however, it follows weekend attacks on oil facilities in Saudi Arabia that some U.S. officials have blamed on Iran. I'll be back with headlines at 5.30. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
8: SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African
9: perspective,
1: it's South Africa's turn to hold the rotating chairmanship of the African Union in the year 2020. But the recent spate of attacks against other Africans in the country has led to speculation over whether it will take up the role. The African Union is asking the country to put an end to the violence as it prepares for the chairmanship. Koleta Wanyohi reports from Addis Ababa.
0: Despite the outbreak of violence in South Africa, the African Union Commission says it does still have confidence in the country. Eba Kalondo is the spokesperson for the AU Commission chairperson.
10: South Africa has been a leading light not only on the continent but internationally of the very African brand of multilateralism. We cannot let that go. Not even when things are going wrong, and probably especially when we are having uncomfortable moments. This is an uncomfortable moment, but it's not in any measure of the imagination insurmountable. The African Union Commission stands ready, now as ever before, to support the South African government and its people as they themselves find the solution to be able to have these difficult but important conversations about how do we live together.
0: Mohamed Diata, a researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, says a country has never been stripped off of the chairmanship
7: before. I don't think that there is any consideration or thoughts to that extent. Uh, So uh, the South African chairpersonship of of the union is not... In any kind of danger of being revoked however I must say that uh, there there was an uproar or there has been an uproar um, about the the attacks that we've we've seen in in South Africa recently.
0: Mohammed adds that when it takes over as chair South Africa may not find it easy to regain the confidence
7: of other states. It's about being the voice of the of the Union speaking for the African Union but more importantly, speaking for African people, and obviously, if you you've seen what has happened in, in, in South Africa and the reactions across the continent, then uh, one would doubt that South Africa would have the legitimacy to represent people that that you know are seeing South Africa as you know not uh, welcoming or not. In this case, at this point, at least representative of, of of any African citizen.
0: To redeem its image, the South African government must send out a clear message condemning the attacks. AU member states say they were disappointed with South Africa's response to previous wave of attacks since 2008. They want the country to take more decisive actions this time round. Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.
1: The Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has appealed the acquittal of former Court of leader Lauren Gagbo uh, over post-electoral violence that killed more than 3,000 people. Gagbo, the first head of state to stand trial in The Hague, and his uh, deputy Charles Blé Goudé were both cleared of cri- crimes against humanity in January and released the following month. Bagbo faced charges of crimes against humanity over the 2010 to 2011 bloodshed following a disputed vote in the West African nation. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Clemence Bektarte, uh, litigation coordinator for the International Federation for Human Rights. Uh, Clemence, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, you've been calling for the ICC prosecutor to appeal uh, uh, Laurent Bagbo's acquittal. Are you convinced that there is sufficient evidence in the support of the charges against him?
11: Well, FIDH was not a party to the proceedings, before the international criminal court. So we're not in a position uh, to consider the actual evidence that was part of the accusation filed from the prosecutor because a lot of evidence was not made public and was actually redacted for protection and security issues. But what we know from our investigations on the ground because FIDH with its member organizations in Ivory Coast have led uh, an important amount uh, of investigations on the ground um, and also collecting a lot of testimonies from the victims of the post-electoral crisis is that there are information and there is evidence that could link uh, Laurent Gbagbo and Charles Legoudet um, to the crimes that were perpetrated.
1: And what would you say are the legal and procedural errors that the trial chamber committed, which led to the acquittals of uh, Bagbo as well as Charles Lee Gouda, on all counts?
11: Well, there are two main motivations for this appeal Mm -hmm. uh, by the prosecutor. One of it is indeed procedural, saying that the the timber in delivering its decision did not respect the provisions of the Rome Statute, which clearly defines what should be in any decision uh, rendered by um, a timber of the International Criminal Court. Um, And um, underlying also, which is very important, and we criticize this at FIDH a lot that the decision was only made public orally at a first stage. So, and we had to wait from during months to have the written decision and to have very precisely the elements that led to this acquittal decision. So this is one of the main basis of the appeal of the prosecutor. And the second one is a legal argument that is brought forward, um, and saying that, um, the standard of proof Um, and the approach to assessing the sufficiency of the evidence was not properly articulated. Meaning that it it is not clear in the decision what methodology, if I may say, what legal standards were used by the chamber to consider that the evidence against Laurent Gbagbo and Charles Blegoudet were insufficient.
1: And uh, with regards to the fact that over th- around 3,000 people were killed in this post-electoral violence, and now these people who are deemed to be responsible for it have been acquitted. How do the people of the nation actually feel about that?
11: Well, they they are very despaired and very frustrated because not only has, uh, have Laurent Gbagbo and Charles Blegoudet been acquitted, by the ICC, but there has also been negative developments for them in Ivory Coast when President Ouattara one year ago um, decided to um, enact a, a legislation providing for amnesty uh, for um, the great majority of the suspects of this post-electoral crisis because there were not only proceedings in the International Criminal Court but also proceedings in Ivory Coast um, where complaints had been filed and a lot of victims were participating and expecting a lot out of these proceedings also at the national level. So now um, the victims are left without any hope for justice and without any hope for reparation, which is very... um troubling for the future also of the country and the nation uh, because the victims are still waiting for justice still waiting for the truth still waiting for the responsibilities to be established and now all they have is no legal proceedings left to be able to articulate this request for justice
1: now clemens when you say that uh, the people are left with no hope for reparations is this a process that has not been started
11: No, it hasn't. Um, As At the level of the ICC, um, as uh, Laurent Bagbo and Charles Legoudet have been acquitted, uh, the victims cannot benefit from any judicial reparations. Now, the Trust Fund for Victims, which is part of the International Criminal Court, can still let assistance programs toward affected communities. But this is nothing compared to what would have been a real program for reparation if there had been... um, sentencing uh, at the level of of this trial and of the ICC. Um, And at the national level, likewise, um, they were hoping that through their participation in legal proceedings, victims could have access to judicial reparation. And now with this amnesty law, they have been deprived of any possibility to access reparation
1: and uh, talk to us what about what is
11: also important sorry what is also important to underline you know is that behind this quest for justice of victims it's not only about reparation it's also about stating the truth about what has happened and about establishing responsibilities um to be able to move forward as a nation and as a country
1: and uh, could you talk to us about the appeal process going forward? When is the appeal going to be heard and uh, are the witnesses who gave evidence during the trial going to be called once again?
11: Well, we don't know yet because first the this request for appeal has to be granted by the chamber. So it means that um, it has uh, to be assessed and there has to be a... Uh, positive green light, if I may say, for the appeal to move forward. So this is why it was really important to understand the, the motivations behind the appeal because they will be assessed by the International Criminal Court. And then um, if they, this appeal is granted, then we will see how um, an appeal uh, trial could be organized um, and which uh, part of the charges and the accusation file will be discussed during this phase of appeal trial.
1: Clemens, thank you very much for joining us.
11: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: And that is uh, Clemence Bektar,te uh, litigation coordinator for the International Federation for Human Rights, on the line from Paris and France. Uh, again, thank you to her for joining us. The time is seventeen eighteen Central African time. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so. All you need to do is send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327 and you can tweet us at channelafrica1. Right after this, we talk corporal punishment.
12: Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story.
13: What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment.
1: Save the Children South Africa welcomes today's constitutional court ruling outlawing corporate punishment in homes. Chief Justice Mokweng Mokweng upheld a 2017 high court ruling which made it illegal for parents to spank their children at home, dismissing an appeal to the ruling. The landmark ruling was appealed by civil society group Freedom of Religion South Africa, which believed the judgment would make criminals of well-meaning parents. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Save the Children's Child Protection Manager, Devia Naidu. Thank you very much for joining us.
16: Good afternoon, someone, and thank you very much for having me on today.
1: Now, what do you make of the appeal in the first place? The fact that some actually believe that spanking should be an acceptable form of discipline.
16: I think the reality is that in society you get differing views. There are those who are always for and there are those against it. We at Save the Children are just really very excited about the ruling because we think this is a good thing. It's a landmark judgment, as you just say, for children. And you know, especially at this time of Heritage Month, it's such a wonderful legacy that we're believing children to be safe in our country.
1: Now, Divya, what do you say to people who um, are saying that, in actual fact, we are now infringing on parents' rights to parent.
16: You see, this is not infringing on parental rights. It is actually ho- upholding children's rights. And it's been a long time coming that we need to, and we need to look at, parents will still continue to have the right to raise their children, to be able to teach children right from wrong, all of this judgment is doing is saying, do not use violent forms of discipline. That's not an infringement on parents' rights. It's, we have been infringing on children's rights and it's now saying, let's put that in the forefront.
1: And uh, Divya, what do you have to say to parents that might argue that we were spanked while growing up and turned out just fine?
16: Yeah, lot, lots of adults say that they've turned out fine. And, and And yes, it's wonderful that they think that they've turned out fine. But if people think about it, if an adult uses violence against a child who's much smaller than them, who's obviously more vulnerable than them, have they actually turned out fine? Or are they now abusing a power relationship and then they're supposed to be protecting and loving and caring for children? They haven't actually turned out fine. We also need to remember that today we live in an extremely violent society, very different from the one we were raised in we were the generation when parents said shut up we shut up children today need to be raised very differently because society demands different things from children today so if we want children to grow up to be confident adults if we want children to grow up to be able to become something in today's society then we cannot expect to raise them the way we were raised so yes parents may think they were fine and they're okay no they're not actually fine if they use violence against children and children need to be raised differently
1: all right uh so divya just to play devil's advocate here uh, some people might argue that the fact that children actually have all of these rights is the problem to begin with it's the problem it's the reason why we're seeing all of these problems that we're having in the world at this point in time so um what would you then respond uh in in that in that regard
16: i love that question i love when people ask me that it's a pity we're going to have very little time or i could do an entire workshop around it but basically when you look at what do children need to survive and what do they need to thrive and be the best they can be and what children need to survive they need food they need water they need shelter to thrive, they need education, they need all of these things, they need to be cared for, they need love, they need all of that. In essence, those are actually children's rights. So when people feel afraid about these children's rights and those things that happen and their children are given too much privileges, no, these rights are actually just saying this is what children need to be able to live and to become the best individuals they can become. But when children are raised with violence all the time, what kind of people do they become? They become violent. But when children are raised with caring and, and with, with being able to allow to speak about what they believe in, to being able to talk to about things, they learn several skills um, in in that time Where when you talk with them rather than when you hit them. So children's rights are not about making sure that adults then get deprived and adults get punishment. And Children's rights are exactly what it says. It's about them being able to be the best they can be. You and I, children's rights are human rights, and we come from a country where there was, they have a history of human rights violations, and therefore we need to look at, as adults, we want our human rights to be upheld. Children are human beings too, and their rights are just different because they're more vulnerable than us as adults.
1: Mm. Now, Divya, I grew up in a generation where these rights were kind of uh, coming to the forefront. And every single time that I brought up that I have rights, it caused a lot more contention within the home. How are we now going to educate parents so that when children actually speak up about the rights that they have, they don't actually um, cause more problems within the home?
16: Absolutely, I, th- I think that is that is one of the most critical things that needs to happen going forward. You see, the intention of of this um, ruling is is not to criminalise parents, and, and and that's something I want to emphasise because. Uh, you know, um, that's what's being put on the table right now by by FOSA, who actually took the matter to the Constitutional Court. But it's not the intention to criminalise parents. The intention is to actually reduce. So if you look at if you look at children then in their homes, children are going to be able to. So as part of our our work to save the children, when we engage. With, with with children, teaching them about rights, we also talk, focus on what their responsibilities are towards realizing their rights and the roles of various people play in making those rights a reality. Part of that also is then we run parenting programs where we help and we guide parents to start to raise this generation of children differently. We also work extensively with educators in schools because they too are parents, but they also parent children in school. it's it's very important that extensive work and preparation gets done for mm-hmm. various people engaging with children so that they understand and they also start to see things differently you see the bottom line the bottom line Simon is that corporal punishment is not about children's behavior it's about how we as adults respond to children's behavior and that's how we've been responding through the use of violence What we need to do now is to help adults to change that so our responses are different so that we empower them to be able to empower children to become better people.
9: Mm, mm.
1: Now, uh, Divya, very quickly, is there a website that uh, parents can go to so they can uh, maybe see ideal ways to discipline children uh, without using violence?
16: Well, one, yes, they can go to the Save the Children website, www.savethechildren.org.ca. But they could also come through the website, go to our information section and contact Save the Children because we're running programs right now. Save the Children together with government and Songke Gender Justice is is putting together a funding proposal to get funds from government, from Treasury, to roll out an extensive positive discipline pro- campaign across the country. So parents need to watch out for these things and get involved in their communities in in positive parenting programs and positive discipline programming that mm. takes place in their community. So through our website, go to our information. Uh, you know, uh, they, they can send an email um, to save the children and we be able to look at how we can support uh, organizations in their own communities to be mm-hmm. able to provide the services out there. We, 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 we're we going all out to help out organizations in communities. We can't reach every parent directly but we can reach organizations in communities to of teach them these programs so that they in turn can work with parents in the community.
1: Alright Divya, thank you very much for joining us.
16: Thank you so much for having me. On.
1: That was Divya Naidu, Child Protection Manager at Save the Children. Economists in South Africa expect that inflation will increase to 4.2% in August from 4% in July. They say while inflation has remained within the South African Reserve Bank's 3-6% to target band, uh, weak growth and weak RAND still pose a challenge. Analysts also expect that the Reserve Bank will keep rates unchanged on Thursday. Now, Lady Noble reports.
8: As Statistics South Africa gears up to release the August inflation numbers, economists say while inflation has largely been able to resist the impact of a weak rand in recent months, a marginal increase can be expected. Economist at NKC African Economists Elise Kruger says despite the expected increase, inflation remains well under control.
5: The main reason for the uptick will be moderate increases in food prices, as well as um, an 11 cent per litre increase in the fuel price. Uh, This will indeed bring um, a number of months that the CPI number is below 6% to 29 So that's indeed showing us that uh, inflation in South Africa remains well under control.
8: Kruger says the Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee is expected to keep rates unchanged when it makes its decision on Thursday.
5: Uh, On the one hand, I think it will be that the Reserve Bank wants to be conservative in the light of the recent spike in the oil price, as well as uh, the potential that the rand exchange rate could weaken if we see the the details of the medium-term budget policy statement in October. And on the 1st of November, we'll have Moody's this um, Moody's Investor Service rating review that could perhaps have negative news for, for South Africa. And, you know, I reckon that the Reserve Bank will just hold tight and wait to see how things develop in the next four to six weeks before making a call to cut rates further.
8: Chief Economist at Standard Chartered Bank Razia Khan says the current economic conditions call for a rate cut. However, the bank is largely expected to keep rates unchanged due to uncertainty in economic policy direction.
16: Inflation is currently benign. There is room to provide more stimulus to the economy. There is uncertainty domestically as well as globally with concerns around a deepening global economic slowdown. We think the right policy response the Reserve Bank would be to cut rates as early as the September meeting. This is, of course, a non-consensus view. One of the reasons why many market participants think the Reserve Bank will likely remain on hold for now. There has, of course, been a great deal of focus on fiscal policy in South Africa. The plan for ESCOM has yet to be announced.
1: 17.31 Central African time. Let's cross over to the news desk. Here is Jwalani Tulo with your latest news headlines.
13: SABC News,
8: independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Perspective.
9: Perspective. perspective.
2: Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. At least 27 children have died in a fire at a boarding school in a suburb near the Liberian capital, Monrovia. The Democratic Republic of Congo's army says it has killed the commander of a Rwandan Hutu militia who is wanted by the International Criminal Court. And finally, the U.S. government will be contributing over $740 million to fight the HIV-AIDS pandemic in South Africa in the next year. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tula.
1: SABC News, independent and impartial. From
2: an African African perspective. perspective.
1: The global medical organization Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, is also adding its voice on growing calls for decisive steps to address gender-based violence in South Africa, which has reached reached crisis proportions. According to a MSF survey, an estimated 11,000 rape cases are reported annually in Rustenburg, the heart of the country's platinum mining belt. Moved by the scourge and its consequences such as HIV infections, unwanted pregnancies and unsafe abortions, the agency has been uh, providing high quality and confidential care for survivors in Rustenburg's Bojanala district through four dedicated clinics known as Khumotsu Care Centres since 2015. Jane Rabotata reports.
17: A MSF study has found that one in four women living in Rustenburg in the northwest province have experienced rape in their lifetime. Speaking on the findings of the 2015 survey, Cecilia Lamula Laroufi, a forensic nurse with MSF, explains that it was concerning that 95% of women who reported being raped said they had never told a medical practitioner.
6: You can already see it's a very large percentage of people that are not you know, health-seeking in a way, and we took it also from the perspective that sexual violence, it's got consequences that other people, they are not even aware of, that if you have been a victim of sexual violence, you can also get an HIV prophylaxis that can prevent you from transmission of HIV from the incidence per se, which is a very vital thing because already, if you look at the HIV pandemic and an endemic, so it's very vital as healthcare professionals that we ensure that we are also putting down the numbers in terms of the prevalences. If then people are not aware, then it becomes really concerns to us to say how then will people then get the prophylaxis that we are talking about.
17: Lamula Larufi adds that unwanted pregnancies from sexual violence was also a concern
6: people got pregnant and they didn't even know that they can get a prevention for that I mean come on how do you then live with a child that you know it's coming from you know that's such a traumatic event where you don't even know the father you are very angry and there's trauma and with pregnancy you have to be you know really well prepared for you to say that you need to have a child so those are the things that really concern us most including also issues around abortions that we know that if If we don't provide uh, safe and quality services related to abortions per se, then it's also causing one of the mortalities around um, unsafe abortions.
17: MSF is working with the Northwest Department of Health to expand access to free, high-quality and confidential care to survivors of sexual and gender-based violence through its dedicated clinics known as Homoto Care Centers or KCCs. MSF says its dedicated drivers play an important role in the line of care. Each day, the drivers collect survivors and transport them to the nearest KCC for mental, physical care and social support, often returning them home again. As they are often the first person a survivor meets following an incident, the drivers have received psychological first aid training in how to support survivors from the start. Reflecting on his work is Mulefa Mutzelenyane, one of the eight drivers.
15: Working in the environment we work in, you realize that a lot of men are stressed, they are frustrated, they come home to environments that are not very conducive, they have economic challenges and then they still have to carry their home set up and try to keep it intact. So you just try to sympathize with the people that are survivors or people that have experienced gender-based violence to a certain extent and in most cases, yes, they are women and we find the men being the perpetrator.
17: In the work that you do, have you been in a position where you had to interact with the perpetrators, where maybe you were dealing with a client who's been maybe abused by their husband or boyfriend or something like that, and have you had to speak to the perpetrators yourself?
15: We actually do sometimes have to take them in for counselling, because sometimes the woman would say, I do not want to part ways with this man, but I would want an intervention of sorts. So when you pick them up, you pick the family set up together, you take them to the center for care and then that's where they get counseling and they try to bring some level of normality to the family setup. But in one instance I remember I was responding to a case where I actually came into contact with a perpetrator. What happened was while the guy was busy helping himself to the lady, the lady managed somehow to scream and alert people around and they responded and found the perpetrator actually still in the house. And because of the setup the community tried to inflict harm on the guy, I had to intervene and keep the peace until the police could come and take away the perpetrator and my role was to take away the the the, the client. And you see the damage it does to the family setup because the husband to the survivor came later on and you could see how distraught he was and how he had to practice restraint to keep himself from harming the guy who was a perpetrator because the perpetrator wasn't even that old. What was his
17: immediate response when he was now found and the communities up in arms wanting to punish him?
15: Initially he was, there was a sort of a numbness around him but as soon as he realized that his life was in danger, he displayed some sort of remorse you do not know if it was genuine or if it was because he realized that he was in danger but you could see that this guy had contemplated what he was going to do because he had actually brought condoms and he had used condoms but after a while there was some sort of remorse i do not know how it ended but he got arrested and he was taken in what
17: would you like to reiterate especially to men out there How can they really come on board and help us deal with gender-based violence?
15: In as much as women have managed to organize themselves and rally behind organizations like shutdown movement and the likes we need men that are positive that will come out and stand behind these women and say enough is enough because if you stand and not speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves then you might as well just be a perpetrator yourself
17: that's Molefe mudzilinyane a driver working in the msf project in rustenburg reporting for channel africa i am jane rabutada in johannesburg
1: the International Airport Transport Association has urged Africa to, liberize, uh, libera- to liberalize its airspace in order to lower the cost of travel on the continent. The call was made at the International Airport Transport Association Regional Aviation Forum, which took place in Nairobi, Kenya on Tuesday. The day-long event brought together aviation industry players and policymakers from Africa to review ways to strengthen the air's Uh, transportation's distribution to the growth of national economies. James Shimanyula reports.
13: Also present at the Nairobi Forum were top officials of the International Air Transport Association, IATA. The forum is taking place at a time when it has become extremely expensive to fly on national airlines in Africa than flying on airlines in Europe and the rest of the world. Adefunike Adeyemi is International Air Transport Association Director for Africa. She sheds light on safety aviation standard in Africa.
3: Safety standard in Africa has improved and is now at par with global average. In fact, many of our airlines in Africa now are doing better.
13: Explaining why it is very expensive to fly in Africa than the other continents, Adeyemi said.
3: One of the reasons why aviation tickets in Africa are very expensive is because of the high cost environment. Tickets in Africa are almost 50% more expensive than tickets in other parts of the world. This is something that is disturbing, not just to IATA but to the airlines, to governments and to the people who use them. Because of the high cost environment, there are very high taxes and charges. Taxes on fuel in Africa are 35% higher than the rest of the world. Taxes on so many other things. There are so many different taxes. We have solidarity Taxes where we charge people in solidarity with other countries and other causes. We have VAT, we have sales taxes, we have so many different charges and levies, and that multiplicity of taxes and charges really puts a burden.
13: A question that arises is what the International Air Transport Association is doing about the high cost of flying in Africa.
3: What we're doing about is, is engaging with governments on a regular basis to one try to get governments to understand that the less expensive travel is, the more people will travel by air and the more it will benefit their economies and their people.
13: Concurring with ADEMI on the high cost of flying in Africa is GetNet, Tilaun Tae, Africa's regional manager in charge of passenger cargo and security.
15: In Africa the environment is a bit different like uh, the operational cost for airlines in Africa is a bit uh, higher than Europe.
13: Specifically the charge segment and also the fuel cost. Explaining what should be done to prevent airlines from becoming insolvent in Africa, Tahir had this to say.
15: First of all uh, there should be a very concrete business case before establishing airlines in Africa. It's should be seen as a business rather than uh, a source of pride. So for that reason, they should really get the right business case to establish an airline in Africa. After doing that, they need to find out a way of collaborating with other airlines in the region. There's enough market for all airlines in Africa, so it would have been a very good thing if they collaborate
13: each other than seeing each other as rivals. The International Airline Transport Association Forum comes at a time when some airlines in Africa, including a Namibian Airline, have gone insolvent. To prevent airline insolvency, Mutia Mwandikwa, a Kenyan aviation expert, has this timely suggestion. African countries need to think out of the box, that it's not necessarily that you must have a Namibian
4: airline, South African airlines, Kenya Airways. For example, Namibia could invest, uh, come into a partnership with South Africa and Zimbabwe and Malawi, then they form one airline which is really strong, which can help them all. Major hindrance in pricing in Africa is the taxation regime in most African countries. A lot of African countries believe that aviation is a luxury, so they really tax the aviation industry. Be it the aircraft, be it the fuel, be it everything else, the services that are offered there, they That really increases the price. The second thing is the monopoly they try to control within their own country. They don't allow other airlines to come in, so they are basically just controlling, just want their own international airlines to be the ones who have the monopoly. They also restrict on the service providers, the fuel providers, the ground handling, so that really increases the costs of operating for airlines. A lot of African airlines have been buying a lot of old aircraft, so this makes it very expensive for them to maintain the aircraft. That way they are paying more money in terms of premiums, in terms of repairs and maintaining the aircraft. So this becomes very, very expensive. And I think that's the main thing. And I think this has actually been addressed when you look at uh, the Open Skies uh, regime, which has been pushed by the African Union. And if that works out, that will be able to at least open up a bit of the African airspace. But still, as you can see, only a few countries, I think at the last count, there were about 24, which have really signed up. And only 11 have committed to the whole process. So hopefully in the long term, if that happens, we can see some prices
13: coming down. That was Mutia Mandikwa. A kenyan aviation expert reporting for channel africa this is james shimanula the time is
1: now 1744 central african time a new voice on the show this evening uh welcome
18: you so much, Samora.
1: So you're going to be doing our economics news for us this evening. What can we look forward to in the bulletin?
18: Well, uh, Zimbabwe Central Bank has raised its main interest rate to 70% to stabilize a plummeting currency. That's all we can look forward to and more.
1: All right. Uh, let's uh, cross directly to it right now. 1745 here is Nosekia Zuma with your latest economics news.
18: Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Zimbabwe's central bank has raised its main interest rate to 70% to stabilize a plummeting currency and rein in surging inflation. The decision is the first by the southern African nation's monetary policy. Policy Committee which was formed three days ago. The increase follows the government's decision in June to ban the use of foreign currency and reintroduce the Zimbabwean dollar abandoned in 2009 in an effort to manage consumer prices rising at the fastest pace in a decade. Kumbero Munzelele reports
14: the central bank governor john manguja says the rate has been increased from 50 percent to take account of developments on inflation and the exchange rate he says the bank expects inflation to start declining after the current high inflation cycle ends as attested by ebbing exchange rate depreciation pressures following the removal of the multi-currency system the Zimbabwe dollar, a precursor of which was patched to the dollar at parity as recently as February, is currently trading at almost $13 per dollar, and annual inflation, which won't be published until next February, is estimated at between 230% and 570%.
18: Meanwhile, Zimbabwean manufacturers have been urged to set up their own distribution centers and take advantage of an era of incentives introduced by the Botswana government. ZimTrade, the national trade development and promotion organization, revealed that Botswana is largely an open market economy, with the business environment being highly facilitative of trade and investment for both local and foreign players. According to the World Bank Ease of Doing Business report, Botswana is ranked 86 out of 190, which indicates favorable conditions for local businesses to trade with Botswana. The recent lending rates and housing deposits cuts by the Bank of Namibia will not be sufficient to move the property market out of the ditch. This is according to the First National Bank of Namibia's June 2019 housing index released this week. FNB's Rusananda Go says the two monetary incentives are rather a drop in the ocean, though having seen a decent market up peak. reports.
10: The Namibian government has eased the regulations on deposits which can be made on mortgage bonds now allowing individuals seeking to buy additional property to pay a lower deposit coupled with the central bank's 25 basis points repo rate cut as aids to lift the ailing economy. Nadango says while the rate of uptake in mortgage credit is still positive, recorded at 7.6% year-on-year at the end of June, the overall trend in mortgage credit extensions has been slowing. The government's decision to ease the LTV ratio has attracted credit ratings agencies Moody's Investor Service critique, with analysts saying while the development might help to encourage demand in the slowing property market, it was negative news to the bank banks credit ratios.
18: Kenya is hosting an international aviation forum that is being attended by more than 100 airline officials from Africa, Europe, the United States, Asia and the Middle East. Also present at the Nairobi forum are top officials of the International Air Transport Association, IATA. James Shimanyula reports.
13: The forum is taking place at a time when it has become extremely expensive to fly on national airlines in Africa than flying on airlines in Europe and the rest of the world.
18: And Britain's trade minister, Liz Truss, says she expects to complete a wide-ranging trade deal with Australia within months of exiting the European Union. In an effort to reduce the economic impact of Brexit, the UK is looking to line up a series of trade deals with smaller, non-European union countries. Truss, who is in the middle of a three-nation that includes Australia, New Zealand and Japan says she expects a quick conclusion to trade talks that will begin when Britain leaves the EU. Looking at your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 358.38 Nigerian Naira, 10.72 Buzonabula at 102.79. 0.76 Kenyan shilling and at 13.18 Zambian guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.08 Brazilian real, 64.17 Russian ruble, 71.57 Indian rupee, 7.08 Chinese yuan and at 14.72 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at 1500 $2 and platinum at $941 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $64.53 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusifye Zuma.
1: Now it's time for your latest sporting news. Here is Neto Chimani.
12: Thank you, Samara, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with football news... In simple terms, a clean for South African Premiership site Mamelori Sundowns tonight will be enough to take them to their first MTN8 final in three seasons, keeping alive their hopes of winning the competition for the first time since 2007. Sundowns captain Wayne Arense is hoping that his team will win the MTN8 this season. The Brazilians will host arch-rivals Supersport United in the competition's semi-final second leg clash at the Lucas best stadium in Atresville tonight. Sundowns will go into the encounter, having scored an away goal in a one-all draw against Supersport.
3: Yeah, obviously this MTN8 is always catching us on a bad time. We're either travelling or we're busy with CAF. But I think this year round, it's, it's not that hectic. Um, um, we are, as players, we really want this cup because this is the only one that's missing out of the cabinet. And I think this year, I think it's a good year for us to go all the way and to lift the trophy.
12: Sundowns will play in three competitions in a space of a week. They were away in the Seychelles in the Cafe Champions League this past Saturday. They host Super Sport tonight in the MTN 8. And on Saturday, they will be hosting Maritzburg United in a league match. Aronsa says the team has depth to deal with many games. We have a big squad so whoever gets called up every day, you need to be ready because we,
3: we don't change our game on personnel because everybody knows how Sundowns plays. So if the coach takes out player A and puts in player B, you need to be ready. And no matter who comes in or who goes out, we play the same. And that's what we are at Sundowns and anybody can give an opportunity or a chance to play, you just need to do your best.
12: In rugby news, for better or worse, there is a renewed interest in the Springbok side. The coaches and players have been exposed to a different sort of pressure in the media room. Yesterday, a team of Irish journalists asked assistant coach Matt Proudfoot to comment about the recent doping suspensions in South Africa at senior and junior level. At first Proudfoot was reluctant to comment. Eventually he provided a brief explanation about the testing protocols and then condemned the act of doping in sport. Earlier this morning, head coach Rasi Rasmas was asked by a foreign journalist to comment on the Ibn izabeth saga. A complaint has been laid against izabeth with the South African Human Rights Commission, SAHRC, which is investigating whether the player physically and racially abused a patient run at a bar last month
8: you know when he, when he tells me something i believe him and, and there's a thorough investigation currently going on in south africa and until something comes out of that you know i'm going to believe what he tells me and we are, are cooperating fully with the fully with the with the authorities in south africa and whenever something from their side comes up and they want something to be done we'll fully cooperate with that the players knows his personality, I know his personality. In the team environment, um, it's spot on, there's no, there's no interruption.
12: The departure of Wales assistant coach Rob Holy from the Rugby World Cup over a possible breach of rules governing gambling in the sport could ultimately bring the team at Loser together, says head coach Warren Cutland. You know, look, it was, uh,
4: you know, we got a shock the other day, like I said. Um, and you know we, we, it took us a bit of time for the, for it to sink in and um, you have to deal with adversity at times you know we lose key players and um, and how you respond and react to that and and this has happened and I must say that the, the players in the last 24 hours have, have really stepped up and they've been incredibly res- responsible and, um, and resilient and sometimes that brings teams closer together and uh, but our whole you know, we've got to draw a line in the sand under this and really focus on, on preparing the team for the next five days.
12: Stay tuned to Channel Africa for programming news and sport from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, i and Itio Chamani.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: That wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again in an hour's time from 1900 Hours for more news from an African perspective. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Luanda Mohamed, technical producer Catherine Maleka, who does not spank her kids, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. Should you have any comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Mwilekaya by Nati. We'll see you again later.
9: As no mama, utozo buya, usa bangeli mali, una nakanje, a gaga puye kaya.